Hey, it's Melissa Rivers, and welcome to Group Text. Stay tuned for a new episode. everyone. What you might not know is November is official adoption month. Sabrina and I have two really interesting stories. Join us when we speak with Jay Rosenzweig, the founder of birthparentsfinder.com, and Ryan Pezzavento, whose story you don't want to miss. Welcome, Jay. Hi, Melissa. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm excellent. So this statistic made me, you know, scratch my head a little. But not, not that much. 803 requests since March, which is more than double over the same time period last year, came into birthparentfinder.com, which is your website. That's correct. Can you walk us through what it, it really is? And you call yourself your personal adoption investigator. Can you explain to us what that is? Sure. Now, mind you, a lot of these clients weren't adopted. I would say maybe 75% were. The other ones are looking for either a mother that they went somewhere else and they were raised by their father or a father that just left and they were trying to find or they're even looking for a sibling. So we do that also. And like I said, adoption is maybe 75% of it. And um, I'm a private investigator. I've been licensed since 1988. I've been doing this since 1982. And when I formed Birth Parent Finder about 15 years ago, we came up with the slogan, since I'm an investigator, I, since I do adoption investigation, I, and I'm very personal with clients, we were more like a boutique firm, and we, we get involved with them. We, we, we're compassionate with them. We, we follow their story from beginning to end. We work with them. Um, some of them have issues they're going through. We just want to get them to have peace of mind. So that's where the personal adoption investigator comes in. So what, what was your first case? What brought you to this place where you thought this is an actual business? People need this service. That's the number one question people ask me. And I've been doing locate investigations for years. And over the years, I've located relatives. But it all hit me in the early 2000s when my niece, Maggie, I was over at her house. She was adopted. She was raised by my, my brother-in-law. She's African-American. She was adopted. And she was about 20 years old at the time. She's sitting in her living room on her computer. And I go, what are you doing, Maggie? And she goes, I'm looking for my birth mother. And I basically said, well, you're going about this all wrong. Let me take over your computer. So I said, birth mother's name. She had that, which was a very common name. She knew where the birth mother lived when she was born. And she knew what city the birth mother moved to. So within five minutes, I found her birth mother. And then later on, she called her birth mother and there was a reunion about a year later at my brother-in-law's house. And then several years later, Maggie got married and the entire birth family showed up at the wedding and it was great. So that's how I got started doing that. What compels you to continue to do this? I mean, what is, what is the driving force for you? Well, it really, it, it gives me satisfaction. I want to help people. I want to have people get peace of mind. Closure. Those are the two things, peace of mind or closure, whichever one. And if I don't achieve that with a client, I really take that personal. I want them to have that. And I would say 90% of the time we achieve that. There's always cases where you're not going to get that. It happens. But I really take this from beginning to end and really, really work with the client to make sure that they're, they're okay. I want them to be okay because they're not okay when they hire us. 
They say they're okay, but look, if you're going to look for a relative or a parent, there's something missing. We want to fill that void. We want to give you that satisfaction. And when we do that, it's just great feeling. Why? And I'm only asking this because I had a friend who did 23andMe just out of curiosity and ended up finding a sibling. Why, Why should we use an investigator like you versus sort of doing our own heavy lifting now. I know it has to do with the time frame because you've said it might take someone years, what takes you a week. So some of these people take DNA tests with 23andMe, Ancestry.com. There's, there's many companies and they look at their results and they don't know what they're looking at. They might see a second or third cousin. And they say, well, I don't know how to put a tree together. I, I don't know how to reach out to these people. So they hire our company. We have genetic genealogists that work with us who can take a second and third cousin and connect that to who your birth mother or father is. That's a real skill. And we have several genetic genealogists. They, they do great work. I mean, they take impossible cases and solve them. I look at these cases, I go, there's, there's no way we're going to solve this. So I, I go to my genealogist and say, can you look at this and solve it? She goes, well, there's a third to fourth cousin that has a huge tree. And you have non-ID on the birth mother. So I think I can, but it's going to take a while. So about a week later, the, the genealogist calls me and says, I solved this case. I go, you're kidding me. She goes, no, told the client, got contact information from the birth mother, made, made contact ourselves. We prefer to make the contact because that's part of our service. That's why we really don't want clients reaching out on their own because it could be difficult. It could be embarrassing. What if the birth mother got remarried? What if she never told her kids? That, that could get ugly. So that's where we come in. We're like the liaison between the birth parent and our client. And that's a real, real good selling point for our firm. So what happens, Jay, when you have a case, which I'm sure you probably often do, where the person doesn't want to be found? We get that. And you know what? Even if they don't want to be found, we still find them. But if if they don't want our, if they don't want to, have us to tell our client where they're located, their phone number. We won't do that. We'll respect their privacy. We, we will do that. That's important. What do you say to the client? And that's a tough one. I had one. I have a lot of these. I had one recently where the client actually cried. She, the birth mother said, and the client was young. The client was only 19, but she was going through some certain things. But her, her adopted mother hired me. Really? And her adopted mother hired me. And she, the adopted mother, this is an interesting story. The adopted mother in her lifetime, fostered 40 children. Jesus. Yeah, she's, she's, she's great. Um, and she's been featured on other shows in, in a long time ago. But uh, I found the birth mother and I said, look, I said, look, I have a client who's, she confirmed that she, well, she didn't quite confirm. She goes, I know what you're talking about, but I want no contact. Don't ever call me again. I will, I will, I will get my lawyer involved. And I don't care. There's no, there, I, there's no liability on my part. I'm not giving out confidential information. That's a, that's not a great reaction. No. And, and you know, she, it, it startled her. She didn't know understand how she could be found. Well, what I didn't understand was if she wanted to hide and not be found, then why did she take a picture with this big smiling face with my client in her arms when my client was three hours old? If, right. you're, if you want to be discreet and not identified, you, you don't take that picture. Um, we discussed this with, we have a team meeting every once in a while. And we discussed that case and we said, well, you know, she was feeling the moment probably. And then she put it out of her mind afterwards. But um, mm-hmm. we were hoping the birth mother would reach out again. Now here's the sad part. The sad part is that our client has a brother. And I, I, do I tell the brother? 
I, I don't know. I, I, that's their option, whether they can call the, the brother is an adult. If he was a minor, I wouldn't. But I mean, the brother, you think he has a right to know he's got a sibling, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do you, what do you say to your client in that, like in that particular situation, you're, you're, do you say I couldn't find her? Or do you say she doesn't want contact, especially, you know, people who are reaching out are probably pretty vulnerable in, in, when it comes down to it about looking for relatives and spe- especially now with, COVID and lockdown, people are trying to gather their families close. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm actually waiting for a lawyer or, or someone to call me from her, from the birth mother's side, because that would be the best thing. That would really help out because I'm not liable for anything. I, I'm, I'm just trying to help my client. But I told my client, you know what, when, when was this? This was two weeks ago. I told my client, let's just wait a little while, figure this out. And I would send a letter to your birth mother with your picture. Actually, you know what? The birth mother has the picture because I texted her. She has my client's picture. She has the picture of her and my client within hours of her being born. But she was pretty stone cold. But the fact is, here's the here's the thing. She responded to my message within minutes. Within really? Minutes. Yeah, and I, I took that as a good sign. But when she, when she said she didn't want any contact, it threw me for a loop. So when she said that to me, by the way, she let me speak for 15 minutes uninterrupted, which was shocking. You know, I could, I could talk a lot, but she, 15 minutes uninterrupted, explained to her why it's going to be very difficult for me to go back to my client and tell her exactly what you said. And I said, all my client wants is peace of mind or closure, knowing a little bit about you, knowing about her medical history. She has none of that. And, and if that's what she gets out of it, that's fine. But, but what would you like me to tell my client? Would you like me to say hello? Thank you for reaching out. Anything, anything, would you like, what would you like me to say? So she goes, no contact. That's all she said. So I'm like going, oh my God, no contact. That's just, and when I got my client on the phone with her adopted mother, they said, well, and she was crying. And I said, you know what? It's not the end of the world. It's not the end of the world. Uh, something good will come out of this. There will be a reunion with someone at some point, but you are only 19 years old and it is early. I mean, I don't take cases of anyone under the age of 18, unless, unless it's a serious medical condition, because there, there are certain liability issues. I won't have anyone hire me who's under the age of 18 because can't, a minor can't go under contract, but their adopted parents can. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say most of my cases end happily. This one just didn't. I mean, I had, I had, um, I've had three this week already that were just amazing. We have so many. I mean, this, this, in the last week, we've actually solved 10 cases and reunited people just this past week. Wow. Well, you know, I- I totally get that uh, there is some apprehension because of the fact people are often afraid of the unknown or if they've been living a a different lifestyle or an alternate life or whatever, and they don't want people to know, I can understand that too. It's just really sad for the kids or the family members who do want to make, you know, contact and then you know, lose out on that opportunity because of fear and anxiety and double lives or whatever. Right. And, you know, if you go back to when I first started Birth Parent Finder, there's certain cases that stick out in my mind. And I do get celebrity cases, by the way, and those are always confidential unless they want me to go public. Uh, But I, I had one, this client who hired me probably 15 years ago, could have been maybe 10 years ago. He was a very well known Hollywood person who was in the, in, music business, let's say music business. And he wanted me to be as discreet as possible. He, he was adopted and he was adopted in New Orleans. And he had young kids who really wanted to know where, his, where their dad came from. They really wanted to know. And he told me, 
He said, I do not want them to know who I am at all. I want you to find the family, tell them whatever you want to tell them that they're, the child's looking for them, but don't tell them who I am or what I do for a living. So, and this was, this was pretty bad. So I called the family. I think I spoke to the uncle who was the liaison between the client and the family. And the first thing he said to me was, we want, we don't want anything to do with that bastard child. And I'm like going, wow, that that's just horrible. And I had to go back and tell my client that my client says, fair enough, fair enough, because it's too bad because I would have flown them out to LA, the whole family on a private jet, whatever, and, and, and then shown them the best time, thanking them for giving me life and making me who I am today. And that, that wasn't, he wasn't given the opportunity for that. No Grammy tickets for you. No. And uh, yeah, <laughs> they probably would have gotten Grammy tickets. <laughs> exactly. No, no after parties, no Grammy tickets, no backstage passes. No. And that really happened too, because that was a time period where this guy was, well, he's still well known, but I mean, if you know that business, you know who this person is. And I, I felt bad. And uh, he said, don't worry, you know, you did a great job. It is what it is. And uh, I felt like reaching out to this guy again and see if, if, um, if he had any interest in doing that again, but probably not. I mean, his kids were young at the time. They're probably much older now, but it was really for his kids. They wanted to know who the family was and it was be a nice thing, but that's just, that, that, that's the negative stories that stick out in my mind and the thousands of good ones, the thousands of good ones. It's the negative ones. What age do you find people becoming curious? When they have kids. Really? Yeah, because- that and also when when their adopted parents are deceased because they don't want to get their adopted parents involved and upset them and say hey I'm looking for my birth parents like what we didn't raise you well and that happens once in a while but but it's their kids who usually push them to do this and uh, during the pandemic it's interesting because they have nothing to lose at this point nothing whatsoever and they want to find them now because it's a good chance you know, people are dying and it's a good chance that their 70 to 85 year old birth parent might be gone because people are dying at a younger age now, believe it or not. And uh, they want to get them before they die. That's really sad. You brought up COVID. Are you finding obviously an uptick with everyone being in quarantine and all these kinds of things? Obviously a lot of it is, is emotional. And when you start delving into people's emotions during a heightened time like this, how much do you find yourself being a therapist? A lot. I, I, I really get to know my clients because I want to know their story. I want to make them feel comfortable. And I, I'm up to 11 o'clock at night talking to clients on, well, texting usually. Um, but I've had clients cry and say, thank you for listening. Um, thank you for being my therapist. They've said that. And that's really other services don't offer that, but I feel it's really important not to just say, hey, here's your parents. Good luck. Have a nice life. We do not do that. I just, I think it's very, it's very sensitive. What do you do in cases, because we, we've spoken to a few people about this, where it's a sperm donor or an egg donor? I won't take it because, and I get into arguments with people like that. I say, a sperm donor is not your father, in my opinion. A sperm donor, a, a father is someone who had some type of relationship with your mother. That's, 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 that's my logical way of looking at it. A sperm donor is not a father. It's, it's, a, it's a donor. Although you are biologically related, there is no connection whatsoever between that donor and your mother. There really isn't. 
So I said, if you really want to find your sperm donor, just take a DNA test. But I don't want to get involved with that because there are legal issues involved. These are anonymous. That's why they call the anonymous sperm donor. But I know people that the, the, if you certain agencies or sperm banks that you go through, they give you a number and you can register your number and match the numbers with other people who have the same sperm donor. So those are your half siblings. I don't know why they would want to find their, their, their sperm donor. I just don't. There's no reason for that. To me, if they want to do that, they're not in a good place. That's just my opinion. So I won't take those cases. But it's often, you know, people want to know where they come from. So biologically, like, let's just say, um, you know, I have a genetic disposition for high blood pressure or whatever the case may be, or some other illness, I think it would be, you know, a benefit to be able to find out who your biological parent is so that you would have at least some awareness, some history, something um, to go on, something to build your profile when you don't know. Right. So if you're if you go through a legitimate agency, the, the, the your mother to get a sperm donor, she's going to be provided with every piece of medical history on the donor. There's nothing going to be missing. They, these companies, they, they vet the donors very, very well. So they're going to have, they even give them medical exams. So they're going to know everything about that sperm donor. So when I, when I get a phone call from someone who wants to find the sperm donor, they really don't give me a valid reason other than I want to know who he is. Do you find most of your cases medically driven or emotionally driven? Probably emotionally. Medical is, uh, is only a certain factor. Now, that's interesting because we had one recently where my client, this was medically driven. My client recently had a kidney transplant. She had a brother that was put up for adoption. And she said, oh, my God, what, my brother doesn't know anything about his, mother, his mother's history. We, maybe he's got a kidney problem. Maybe he has issues. I, get, I want you to find my brother who was put up for adoption. So I found the brother. He was kind of freaked out. He goes, I've used other eight agencies. No one could find my mother. I didn't know I had a sister. And uh, he was very apprehensive at first and then figured everything out. We combined the two of them. They, they actually met up two weeks ago in Northern California where my client and her mother lives. He lives in Idaho, which was, believe it or not, heavy COVID in Idaho and Spokane, Washington. Yes. He was exposed heavily to it. He was the only one at his warehouse that was working because all his coworkers had COVID. So I get a phone call at 930 at night. This was two weeks ago from my client. They were all on the phone. The brother, they go, hey, Jay, we, we, we met we met the brother. He's right here. We want to thank you on the phone. This is 930 at night. I'm half asleep. And they go, we hope we didn't wake you. I go, no, it's OK. And then they, they texted me pictures of their reunion. And it was just so nice. And, and um, now he can go to his doctor and say, hey, my family has kidney issues. But it's more to it than that. It's about that. And it's also about the family connecting and just now they're all friends, family. It's great. We really vet our clients. We want to know as much about them as possible. We don't take every case. If we don't think you're in the right place, right frame of mind, we're not going to help you. Walk us through your process. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we could talk hours on this stuff. So, so they fill out a form on our website and it basically says your name, uh, what your date of birth is. If you do have the name of your adopted parents, what, 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 what's your story? Do you have non-identifying information? Non-identifying information is very important. That's information that the social services gave you, the age of your birth mother, uh, where she was from, what her medical condition was, who her family was, everything but without names. Uh, did they take a DNA test? And sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Sometimes we can solve these without DNA. So, for example, I'll give you the one I solved today. As a matter of fact, this morning, just before we, we got online. 
It's like, uh, do you ever stop? No, it's, it's really bad. We have six people working for us. And this, my salesperson, my salesperson has been in this business forever, since 1993. She used to work for a TV show many years ago doing this. And she she found me and then she's been working with me for a couple of years now. And she's amazing. So she vets all these clients. So so the client this morning, okay, she goes, Jane. Leave it this, to a good TV producer. Yeah, so she goes, <laughs> this is this is a really good one. You'll solve it very quick. We had a birth mother's full name, first, middle, and last, and a date of birth, and a picture. Easiest case in the world. So that I'm going to take you through my process. My process is I can look in a database, easily get her contact information. Now, mind you, the name I had was a maiden name. So I was able to look in a database, find out her, her marriage record. So I ran her name and date of birth in a database, her married name, and I found her living on the East Coast. I could, all the numbers were disconnected. She had a son. So here we go. Last night, I contacted the son, and he goes, this is interesting. My mother died six years ago, um, kind of taken back. I sent him a picture, and he goes, this is not my mother. This is not my mother. And I sent him the, the non-ID, and he goes, that's not my mother either. My mother had blonde hair and blue eyes, not brown hair and brown eyes. She goes, something is not right. So it turns out that my client's birth father who she met 20 years ago, who found her on, on DNA, actually found her some other way. There was no DNA 20 years ago. He gave her the name of the birth mother and a picture, but he had the wrong name. Wow. He had completely the wrong name, the same, the same first name and last name, but a different middle name and the wrong date of birth. So he was busy. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> but, but the picture we had was probably the birth, the right person. So I go, you know what? I, I'm not going to be satisfied. This, this, I did this all morning before we, we got in line here. So I said, let me go back and look at some databases and look up the birth mother's first name and last name with the DNA that she took. There was DNA with, with a second cousin. I found a second cousin who had a Muslim name. How is that possible? I mean, it's like you have no, you have no Muslim relatives. Nobody's from Bangladesh. So I'm thinking... Okay, okay, it's possible that this second cousin was a first to second cousin could be her birth mother's sister's kid. The birth mother could have married a Muslim and changed and, and used the Muslim last name. This or con I wait, or converted easily. Um, well, she, well, here's the thing I looked in marriage records I, and I looked at if, if, the, if this woman had a sister. Well, sure enough, this woman had a sister, so I'm going through my databases looking at the sisters marriage history. And sure enough, she married a Muslim guy from Bangladesh. Sure enough, that's her sister. No, no ands, ifs, or buts, because the sister's age matched the age of the non-identifying information we had on the original birth mother. So, so I, um, I put two and two together, found, found who the birth mother was or is living back East, and she's still alive told my client everything, even showed her a picture on Facebook of the birth mother. And I, I confirmed that this is your birth mother. It all matches because she has Facebook friends with this woman who's married to this Muslim guy who changed her name, her, her, her American name to the Muslim name after she got married and they're Facebook friends. So he goes, you're right. And I showed her the picture of the birth mother. She's, oh my God, we look so much alike. And the picture from, from 50 years ago matches my client's birth mother's picture today, the one we found on Facebook. So that case is done with the exception of the connection. There's, I'm waiting for the connection. Do you ever have cases that involve uh, law enforcement? 
Never. Um, that's the kind of DNA work we don't do. That's a, there's a person, there's some famous person living in Southern California who's got her own TV show who does that. We, um, we do not do that kind of work. It's, it's a little different. I personally don't do DNA work. My staff does, but our, their, their job is strictly to connect families. Wow. You brought up social media. How much do you find via social media? And, and it, this, the only reason, the, one of the reasons I ask is how much privacy do we actually think we have that we don't? You don't. Um, and I believe, you know, being a private investigator, I, I'm, I firmly believe that privacy is important. I mean, there are, there are legislators that try to take privacy rights away from us and say you shouldn't have access to this information. But it's important for us to have access to this information because we have cases that involve litigation that we need information on, background checks. Background checks are very important. We even do background checks on the people we find, birth, birth parents, siblings, because especially for the celebrities. Who, who want to make sure that these people we find are not bad people that want to go after their money. And we get them, even if it's not a birth parent case, uh, somebody they want to do business with. We, because we, I, I still do investigation work. It's very important. Do you sleep? I sleep from 10 to five, seriously. Uh, yeah, I do, but I, I just, my mind is constantly going. And I do, you know, it's interesting. I have a trainer that comes twice a week to the house and um, she goes, you got to turn your mind off. It's really important. She goes, even for five minutes. I said, I, I just can't. What's the most critical skill for a good PI? Being able to talk to people and getting their guard down. Getting and how them, do you do that? You build a rapport with them. You, you, you find something in their background that you can associate with. And I've learned, I've learned these skills over the years. Like, like um, uh, I don't want to use you an example. but I No, go ahead. Use me. Okay, so I, I do my homework. You went to Penn, didn't you? Yep. Okay, so you were in college at Penn. Um, and did you, did you go to parties? Of course. Okay. So, so I have a friend who's my best friend who went to Penn and my best friends said, I told him about, I'm going to be on this podcast. Oh, great. I don't know if she remember me because I, I was a graduate student at Penn in their dental program. And I used to go to parties and I used to see Melissa Rivers all the time, but she probably wouldn't remember me. And my, the house I lived, I was going to say he saw me walking my dog because the house I lived in was down the street from the, from the dental school. Right. So now see what I'm doing here. I could have made the story up, right? Right. I didn't, but, but, <laughs> but I mean, that's, you, you look at something that you may have in common with someone. So before we let you go, I have a couple more questions. What is the case that haunts you? And what was your most satisfying case? Oh wow! Um, well, nothing really haunts me, but uh, the the one the one with this eighteen year old brother that's that bothers me to this day because I really they're such nice people. They're um, they're they're Ethiopian. They're Ethiopian, and uh, the 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 brother was raised by white Catholic parents and raised very religiously. So maybe that's why they don't want to reach out. But that would. It still haunts me. That would give me satisfaction if one day she was be able to reunite with her brother. And the birth, the birth circumstances, I understand, weren't very good. I don't know the details. They wouldn't get into it. But it, it could have been military. I don't know. But uh, they wouldn't talk about that. But maybe the adopted mother knows. Maybe that's why she wants to keep my, her son away from my clients. I, I don't know. But um, as far as the most satisfying client, um, oh, wow, there, there's a whole bunch. Um, probably <laughs> the newscaster in Los Angeles from 2014. The story was probably their best 
heartwarming news story ever in the history of Channel 5. It was nominated for an Emmy, so we had to go to the award show for that in, in, in North Hollywood because it was local. And then it won a Golden Mike Award and an LA Press Award. So I got to go on stage. To re- I, they don't give me the award because I don't work for the station, but they let me go up on stage because, hey, look, I was the one who orchestrated this whole thing. And it was a six-month story that was phenomenal. It was just – and all the other newscasters from the other stations are coming up to me and go, they go, we're so jealous because this is, this is the best story, and we wanted it. What makes you sleep well? What makes what's the happiest part for you? What what keeps you going? Well, what keeps me going is I have a stack of files on my desk that haven't been completed. But if those, by the way, if they ever get completed, that means I have no work, right? Right. Correct. So that would not be good. It, sure, it's money motivated. You know what? We do very well. But look, we do take pro bono cases. We have a contest once a year that we want three compelling stories and we'll do your case pro bono. Last year's, we did it on Mother's Day last year. Uh, uh, that was fun. We did it. We did a live session on Instagram. It, it was great. The number one tip for finding a relative. And I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to anyways because I want to help people. Take a DNA test. Just take a DNA test because your birth mother or father or siblings could be looking for you. Well, Jay, what you do is amazing. People can find your service at birthparentfinder.com. And uh, thank you. This was fascinating. Thank you for joining us. Joining us now is Ryan Pezzavento. Welcome, Ryan. Honored to be a part of it. Ryan, you have a fascinating story. Let me just set it up. Your father passed away. You were cleaning out your mother's garage to be helpful, and you came across some very interesting paperwork. What was that paperwork? Well, it was about three in the morning when I discovered it, and it was information about a donor that my mom and dad used um, to help conceive me. My dad um, was older, and he had had a vasectomy. He had a previous wife with three kids, so that's why he got one. And then when he married my mom, they decided they wanted another one, so they used a donor. Now, you didn't know, you had no idea about this. No, not until I was 25, two years ago. And you were cleaning out the garage. That's right. How shocked were you? I was um, really shocked, actually. Um, My dad was 55 when I was born. Um, He never really shared too much physically with me. So it was always something that was confusing in the back of my mind, but I never thought that it was anything like this. Wow. Wow. What did you say to your mother? Well, the next morning when she was up and I woke up, I asked her if there was any secrets that she had that I needed to know. (laughs) So you were baiting her. Right. She said, like, what? And so I just threw the paperwork in front of her and asked her what that was all about. Were Were you angry? Um, I would say that I was at first um, shocked, angry, um, but after talking about it with her and taking a DNA test and finding all these half-siblings that I have, it's been actually one of the greatest things that's ever happened in my life. Wow. So let's rewind. You decided at some point if your biological father was a sperm donor, you went on a search to find out if there were others. How did... Tell, talk, walk, walk us through that. I joined um, a Facebook group called DNA Detectives, and they kind of guided me through a simple process. 
I ended up taking my first DNA test through a company called 23andMe, and it took about six to eight weeks to get the results back. And at first, when I logged on, there were about a dozen half-siblings that had showed up at that point. So I found one on Facebook um, and messaged her, and she invited me to our private Facebook group that has um, now at this point over 40 members. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Was she shocked when you reached out like, hi, guess what? We're related. Well, she already knew. Um, but so why had no one reached out to you if they already knew? Because I hadn't taken the DNA test. Uh, uh, uh. Having my DNA on the website was what enabled me to find all of them. And so person. is there like a registry that the DNA goes into and then they do a search? How does that work? It just connects you with people that share the same or similar DNA as you. And then it assigns, um, you know, half sibling, mom, dad, cousin. It tells you the most possible relationship between two individuals. So what was, what was it, it like in the beginning? So you get into this Facebook group. It, it was, um, it was, was it overwhelming? It was at first, as it is with uh, many other people that end up joining. Um, and also at first it was difficult because I do have sort of a past that not everybody um, can get over quickly. But once I talked with everyone and explained it, now I have talked to pretty much everyone. And there's about six to eight siblings that I talk to on a daily basis. And how, how, how did you form that bond? You know, it just kind of came about over time. Um, the sibling that I first messaged, she actually lives only 30 minutes away from me. Are so, you kidding me? Yeah. Her and I met um, a few weeks later, about halfway, um, and talked and stuff. And for the past two years, that's we've had a bunch of other siblings pop up, and I've formed a lot of great relationships with them. And I've met seven of them in person now so far. And the first time meeting them, it's like we... We had all known each other our whole lives. Is it? Do you see a lot of physical similarities? Yes, absolutely. A lot of us all, we all kind of look different, but we all share one thing or two things. Um, and you can always tell. Um, there are some people that look more like others and vice versa. Um, but you can definitely tell with pretty much everybody that we're um, related. Now... Have you reached out? How did you discover who the sperm donor was? Uh, actually, he showed up about a week after I joined the Facebook group. Um, one of his brothers took a DNA test and also his brother's daughter, so his niece. So somebody ended up talking to them, and um, for a while they thought that he wanted to remain anonymous and didn't want to have any contact with anyone. But once he joined the group, he confirmed that that wasn't true um, and that he's very proud of this. And actually, one of his sons that he has with his wife is in our group as well. Really? Now, did you ever ask why he decided to be a sperm donor? Uh, we really haven't. Um, he just kind of did it as something that he did. Um, he has strong genes of course, since they used it 74 times. 74 times? Yep. He said that the um, genetics place confirmed 74 pregnancies from his sperm. 
So, oh my goodness. So did he become addicted to it? I mean, it's just, you you think about this. In my mind, I'm like, okay, did he do it for money? Did he do it because he wanted to do society a favor and help these couples and families? Like, what was his, what, what was his mindset? Have you gotten into any of that whatsoever? The general consensus is that he, uh, he did want to help. Um, he was with his wife since high school. So um, that was the only woman he's ever really been with. And he said that he just wanted to spread help to people that needed it. And uh, he seems to be proud of it. And um, unlike a lot of donors who, or donor conceived people who find their biological parents or whatever, a lot of them don't want to talk to him. So it's kind of a blessing that he's open and honest with all of us who are part of the group. Now, you're saying 70-something. How many? I was told that you have managed to track down almost 67 relatives. Um, Is that true? We, that was a number that um, was previously thought to be the total. But um, since he discovered that there were 74 pregnancies, we think that it's more than that. But so far, we have tracked down 46 of them. That's crazy. You went, and now you were an only child. Yeah, I was. Well, so now well, with, have... well with, with his parents, because remember, his father, uh, the deceased parent, had children from his previous marriage, correct? Did you have a relationship with those They were people? all um, 20 to 30 years older than me. So mm -hmm. I didn't really have a brother-sister relationship with them or anything like that. Um, I talked to them on occasion. Um, I've been to, like, weddings and stuff with them. But besides that, we don't really talk too often. But I grew up with thinking that they were my half-brothers and half-sisters, which um, they aren't actually biologically related to me, I now know. But to go from being an only child to 47 or whatever it is, siblings, has to be... I mean, you got to play some serious mental hopscotch and finding, by the way, and finding out that one lives 30 minutes away. You could have dated her. You know that. You could have gone to school with her. Yep. I have two sisters that live in Pittsburgh that went to high school together and just found out um, recently that they're sisters. Um, but as far as going from an only child to having all these siblings, um, I I do find it a blessing because I did always want to have a brother or sister growing up. And um, now that I have them, the relationships I'm forming is incredible. Um, it feels like there's something that was missing as a child. Um, and at the same time, I'm glad that I met them when I did because I do have a pretty crazy past. Um, and so I feel like this was the right time to meet them. When so you keep bringing up your crazy past. <laughs> How crazy was it? Oh, I have dealt with uh, quite a lot of things um, with the law. Um, I was addicted to heroin and cocaine for three years, um, had a lot of mental health issues, spent some time in jail and rehab. Um, there's just been a lot of stuff. Like with depression and things like that, there can very much be a biological component to it. Have mm -hmm. any of your other relatives shared addiction stories or mental health stories? Yes. Um, one of them has shared with me that they went through a heroin addiction as well um, and have gotten over it. They are four years clean and I'm five years clean now myself. Congratulations. Uh, Congratulations. That's I huge. Do. 
A few others of them have experimented with drugs and stuff. Um, didn't really get too bad into it. Um, but a lot did have mental issues, mental health issues and still continue to struggle with them a little bit to this day. Have you managed, because I think that, because I work so much in the mental health space uh, in general, have you found, for you personally, have you found um, not a sense of peace, but an ability, more people in your life to speak openly about that with that are literally now relatives? Are you finding yourself forming your own sort of support group within, within your bigger group? Absolutely. I have talked about pretty much everything with them. Um, they, it's like they know as much about me as any other family member that grew up with me would. And how old is the oldest? How old is the youngest? Uh, the oldest just turned 31. Um, the youngest just turned 21. Um, the biological father actually has a um, child of his own that I believe is 33. But of all the donor ones, the 31 is the highest so far. So for the 21-year-old, are you finding the ability, and, and is anyone else, that they're almost mentoring the youngest and being a support for the youngest as they're transitioning to being an adult? Um, yeah, you could say that, sure. Um, yeah, I'd say that. I'd say it's, and it doesn't always have to be even about the age. It could be with anything, anyone transitioning into whatever chapter of their life they are at the current point. We um, always share something that's going on in our life, and we all talk about it. So it's really amazing. And what does your mom think about this whole um, experience, you know, um what does she say? How does she feel? Is she um, is she embracing it? I'm sure that there is some level of happiness for you because you do have siblings. You do have someone to share your journey, your story with. How is she taking all of this? So at first she wasn't too keen on everything because she did want to keep it anonymous and she never wanted to tell me um, and neither did my father. Um, I don't know if they ever were planning on it, um, but I wouldn't think they were. So at first she was very um, against me doing the DNA test and stuff. When I showed her the picture of the first sister I found, um, I said, this is my sister. Do you think she kind of looks like me? And she said, yes, but don't go out messaging her or stuff. I said, well, I already did. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh well <laughs> over time she's definitely grown to be more accepting of it as I've talked with her about it over the years a lot um, and her and I both know that we're both okay with this and hey. in December um, there's another brother that lives um, about an hour from me him, the sister and I and all of our moms are going out and we're all meeting each other which wow. I've met. My mom hasn't met any of them. Wow. Now, you were planning a huge reunion that had to be put on hold because of coronavirus. How were you, where was it, and how were you guys all coordinating? Because that's a big group. I mean, Sabrina comes from a big family who does a reunion every year or every two years? We do it like every five years because we're so big to get everybody together. It, it's a process. It's, it's, it's a major undertaking just in the coordination. I remember Sabrina, was you were supposed to do the next one. And you're like, yeah. oh, no, 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 please. No, 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 no. <laughs> Don't make me in charge. 
So how were you organizing that? Were you the person in charge? Um, I would say yes. Um, it was kind of something that was in discussion for about a year. We said, let's, you know, try and do a reunion. You know, we'd plan something and fall through. So finally, I took the initiative with some other people and said, okay, here, we're going to vote on a date. We're going to vote on a place <laughs> and make it happen. And so we voted on the Poconos, and that was supposed to be um, at the end of June to through early July. Um, there was uh, 15 that said that they were definitely going to make it, and many others that um, was a maybe or maybe just a few days. So we had an Airbnb that was able to fit 16 people. Um, Holy cow. I put that deposit on my card and I had um, some people send me money and we did all the calculations for how much everyone would owe and stuff. So after that, we had to cancel it and I had to send all that money back. Um, but we are definitely planning on doing it again at some point. You going to make t-shirts? Oh, uh, we could. <laughs> didn't think about that. But <laughs> a little picture of a sperm on it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, it's, so you know, it's like your story is unique, but it it's not. After listening to your story and the others that share, you know, your same journey, I can't I can't imagine that they would not be um, a little shy, have great anxiety about meeting one another. You know, that's that's also scary, don't you think? Yeah, and well, a lot of people do. You know, when they first join the group, they're overwhelmed. They're not sure how to interact with everyone, but they they usually get over it pretty quickly because we're very laid back in the group. There's no like arguing or anything of that. Um, and it's very informative. Um, and there are actually, I would say six or seven people out of the 46 that we've discovered that do not want to be in the group, don't want to talk to anyone, don't want to have anything to do with us. Um, and we're not sure why. I mean, we know everybody handles things differently and has different opinions. So we respect that. Um, and maybe hopefully they'll come around at some point. Has it helped you during the pandemic to have this incredibly extensive group? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, it w definitely would have been different without having them. Do you do big, giant Zoom calls? Yes, we actually do. Um, we try to have them about once or twice a month. Um, the most we've had on at one time is about eight people. We've played uh, these card games that are able to be played over Zoom and stuff and then just talk about our stories, our individual stories. Well, Ryan, it is fabulous to meet you. Such an amazing story. The fact that you have made the effort to track everybody and join the group and do all that is 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 really lovely and i appreciate you sharing your story with us of course absolutely honored to be a part of it thank you so much